much. All right, let's return to God's Word. If you have that Bible that you were using, would you return to the book of Ephesians? There's a man named Bill Anderson. He was a professor at Harvard University, and he would, uh, he was a sociology professor, and he taught a class on the madness of crowds. Uh, so he studied phenomena like uh, the New England witch hunts, um, the, the rise of urban legends, uh, and even like financial panics. And so he studied those kind of things and, and taught uh, classes on that. And so this, this class, the madness of crowds, just drew a lot of crowds, a lot of interest. Uh, Bill was 60 years old the first time he went to church. And he eventually got involved with a local church that clearly demonstrated the power of God. And all of his study and research on crowds did not prepare him for what he discovered at the local church he eventually became a part of. He saw not only diversity, just think of where Harvard is, but a kind of genuine, genuine fellowship and relationship amidst such diversity. These are his words. He says, it was striking from the first moments I came through the door. It was clear that something special was going on. The relationships seemed not so much unnatural as highly uncommon. So I was introduced to the idea of a healthy church, a concept that had ever before eluded me. So there's this power of a, not just a personal witness, but a corporate witness that was instantly recognizable to someone who gave his life to the study of crowds. Something in the church that made up the church family distinguished it from any other kind of gathering. And so this corporate witness is a powerful, God-wrought thing. And it comes from the fact that when the Lord saved you and I, like remember we just read from chapter 2 of Ephesians? When the Lord saved you and I, he made us new people. And he, he himself, remember the end of chapter 2? He himself fitted us together. People who used to be strangers. Like in back then, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. People who were strangers to all of God's promises and all of God's working with his people were brought near. And the remarkable thing of what we just read is that, did you pick up on those verses where Christ himself was a preacher? He himself came and preached peace to you who are far off and those who are near and brought us together and through his death made one new man. Profound identity change. And that rings throughout the New Testament as a result of what Christ has done. 
So this concept of diversity, we've started talking about this a few weeks ago. This concept of diversity is a not only commanded, like we looked at a few weeks ago, but now in Ephesians 2, we learn is done by the power of God, like he does that. It's not man-made. And diversity is profoundly important with its connection to the gospel. So one writer puts it this way. That means that wherever gospel people exist, diversity should exist as well. Diversity grows naturally from the gospel. Diversity grows naturally from the gospel. So in our thinking, I don't know what you've thought about this idea before of diversity within a local church. That means it's, it's probably more important than maybe you've given it credence in the past and probably less important than some Christians today give it credence now. This diversity, as Bill from Harvard discovered, is part of the grand witness of the truth of the gospel, that the gospel of what Christ has done for sinners like you and I is true. And at the same time, or rather I should say, because of that, it pushes against a notion that I've had, I don't know if you've had it, like diversity is nice. That'd be nice to have. But it's not essential. And I think Ephesians chapter 2, chapter 3, pushes against that notion that it's a nice idea. So maybe diversity, if you thought like, if you think like how I used to think, maybe if you think diversity is a nice idea, maybe diversity now we're learning is probably a bit more important than you and I gave it credence for. At the same time, it's less important than some may give it credence for. Because diversity doesn't have, doesn't make us more pleasing to God. It doesn't make us more mature believers. It, it points to a reality. It's not the cause of a reality. Diversity, one writer says, is more like a, a thermometer than a thermostat. It tells you or points to what's happening. It doesn't make it. So when we've been talking for the last several weeks about what makes a community of believers compelling... And it's only the power of God in the gospel, not anything man-made that we can do. This concept of diversity and its importance and its place is something that we need to spend more time considering, not less. So for this morning, as we get into Ephesians chapter 3, 
As we read through it, I want you to listen to the message of the chapter. And I'll help kind of unpack it. But listen to the message of the chapter and listen for what Paul describes as the purpose of the church. Now, you and I get our purpose statement as a church family from Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's not wrong. Listen how Paul describes the purpose of the church. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, and that's the reason is being built together in Christ Jesus at the end of chapter 2. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to us by his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. To his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So those who are not Jews have a part in God's blessings in Christ Jesus with those who are Jewish believers. Verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was in accord to his, to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with all power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, plural, being rooted and grounded in love, 
may have strength to comprehend, strength to get it, strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. This passage um, is very much part of just Paul's personal comments to the church. I, Paul, prisoner, please don't get discouraged about what's happening to me as I travel around telling people about Jesus and I'm thrown in prison. Don't get discouraged like this. God is doing things profound things. And when, when Paul talks about what God's doing, he, he doesn't focus on what God's doing to him while he's in prison. His focus is on the church. How communities of believers are being formed together and how God's purpose for the church is being showcased. So we have that purpose statement. Did you see it? So we want to look at the purpose of the diversity and the, the character of it, and then maybe some things we can do to kind of not get in the way. Paul's purpose statement started in verse 8, chapter 3. To, to me, though I am the very least of the saints... How many of you think of yourselves as like the weakest Christian? The barelyest Christian, if I could make up a word. The Apostle Paul would call himself the least. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Notice where it comes from to live that supernatural life. This gift of grace was given to proclaim, to announce, to herald to tell, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Things that no amount of studying natural revelation would reveal this unsearchable riches of Christ. Grace was given to Paul the least to preach to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and then to shine a light, to bring out of the corner, to reveal, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So this light is bringing clarity and contours for everyone. Because, and that's fitting, because God is the creator of everyone and all things. So this gospel light is bringing clarity, bringing to light for everyone. 
Jew, Gentile, no matter what category. And this mystery so that through the church, this normal group of weak, fallible, stumbling saints, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be put on display, made known, not only to all kinds of people, but even heavenly beings, this, verse 10, rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Somehow the diversity of the church, a church that has no power to knit themselves together across these huge diverse lines, somehow because it's God's Holy Spirit that's doing the work, this is a manifold put on display, his purpose and wisdom, sorry, his, his manifold wisdom is put on display to these heavenly rulers and authorities. People can think God is foolish in his dealing with weak and sinful people. Apparently, rulers and authorities in heavenly places can have such opinions as well. But in this passage, God's manifold wisdom, just wisdom upon wisdom. Man, you got that right. You did it the right way. Who saw that coming? Oh, that's so much better than anybody could have ever seen. Oh, man, the unexpected. That, wow, you're so smart. <coughs> God's manifold wisdom in ways is put on display over and over and over in the church. That's profound to me. It means that God's purposes for gatherings of believers like Country Bible go far beyond reaching beings that we can see with our physical eyes. There's a higher court. And you and I, weak, stumbling, everyday, normal Christians, who get up on Sunday and, and just like, should we go to church? We should go to church, shouldn't we? Should we go to church? I guess we should go to church. Let's go to church. Okay, let's go to church. I really want to go to church. Can we just watch church? Fine, let's go to church. Like bigger things in happening, are happening when we gather then. Huh, we made it to church. What's for lunch? And you and I are just tasting this. One day when he returns and all is revealed, we will look back and say, you were hinting at that all along and I just didn't have the wherewithal to understand what was going on. Notice it is God's eternal purpose that the church would display his wisdom to all creation, that which is seen and unseen. 
It's his eternal purpose. And even though it's just now being put on display since Christ Jesus has died and risen from the dead, it's been hidden, so that's why he calls it a mystery. God's had this in mind. Now, try to wrap your finite mind around this from eternity past. You didn't stumble onto church life. God has intended to put you and I into his body of believers from eternity past. Folding Jews and Gentiles together. See it in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. No distinction. You think back to the Old Testament before Christ came and how Isaiah the prophet talks about in chapter 49, just speaking to the tribes of Israel that are in exile and how he has promised to bring them back to their land after their time of punishment is done. They're in exile and he's going to bring them back. And then he says, you know what? Actually, I'm going to do better than just bring you guys back. I'm going to widen this up. So he says, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring them back uh, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And what Paul is saying is that that ancient prophecy is now being put on display. It's finally coming true in Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. That the people of God are descendants of Abraham, not only because of flesh, but those who are those who share his faith. And if you ask me, Pastor Dean, what is it about this diversity that makes it so that even the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, not just Bill from Harvard, what makes it so that even rulers and authorities in heavenly places are sitting up and taking notice? I would have to point you a little further back to what we just read earlier that it was the degree of separation between these two, these two groups. Did you notice chapter two when we were reading that earlier between the songs that the kind of separation between these two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, he called the dividing wall of hostility. It's not like we live in separate neighborhoods and we don't interact and we just let bygones be bygones. There was hate being thrown over this wall. It was a dividing wall of hostility. Chapter 2, verse 14. 
For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. They were openly hostile to each other. And if someone was to ever describe these two groups coming together because of what Christ has done to break down this barrier, anybody in the first century reading this, listening to this, would cry out, Pastor Paul, that would take a miracle. And he would say, yes. So look at verse 14. It's why he prays. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, his manifold wisdom, the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with all power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to get it, to comprehend, to wrap your mind around this mystery, to comprehend not just yourself, but with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. That's a great phrase, to know what surpasses knowledge, the love of Christ that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul describes what is humanly impossible. Notice the three members of the Godhead at work. He prays to the Father that the Spirit would work in us and that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. Like all three members of the Trinity are working together to bring about this eternal purpose in the local church like ours. God is doing so much bigger things than what we commonly can see or appreciate or remember. And this leads Paul to worship. Notice verse 20. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. For the people of the first century, this Jew and Gentile thing was absolutely unimaginable. So to him who's able to do not just a little bit, but far more, far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. This is him at work. Paul asked for the impossible. God's power at work within us. God will do it. And thankfully, like, he will get the credit. He will get the fame. And that's what our lives are for. Like, that's purpose, what we're made for. It 
It's an amazing thing that Paul would write this of normal churches. People who come together because of the gospel. God's eternal purpose is shown off in the diversity of the local church. It's a diversity that points to the power of the cross. That we are unified, even amidst our diversity, is a powerful thing. And it's purposeful. Just think of the analogy of marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, marriage is a thing that celebrates diversity and unity at the same time. The power of marriage is that the husband and wife are different from each other. Eve was created as a helper who corresponded to or was fitted to Adam. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. Yet at the end of Genesis chapter 2, we read that these two must hold fast to one another and be one flesh. Verse 24. The strength of marriage lies in that our differences are from each other for sure. But those differences are only weaknesses if there is no union, no oneness, no unity. And so the analogy holds true for the local church. Our strength, our ability to showcase the supernatural power of God is our diversity. And yet without unity, that diversity is merely a playground for all kinds of discord and separation and growing animosity. And it actually defames the name of Christ. So if you ask me, Pastor Dean, so let's just be clear. What kind of diversity are we talking about? What kind of diversity points to the manifold wisdom of God? Usually when we think of diversity, we think of ethnic diversities. And indeed, Jew and Gentile was brought up here in the text. If ethnic diversity is the only kind of diversity you think about, when we talk like this, we're missing the point of the passage. There are some places in which ethnic diversity is a powerful thing because it makes up the community. And some places where it's not. Like, like country Bible. The kind of diversity that points to the power of the gospel is a kind of diversity in which any multiplicity of backgrounds in which unity is only possible because of the gospel. So if, if you're trying to remember something as a takeaway, it can be any kind of differing backgrounds to where the only explanation for these two, three groups to be together unified like this can only be explained because of the gospel.
I just think of boundaries of age. In recent years, evangelicals rightly talk about being multi-generational, and rightly so. There are very few groups where the generations get together. And by God's grace, in recent years, like that's become a very, very powerful thing in groups of believers, like gospel churches. One writer just this catches my attention. He says, like, where else will you find young men spending their Friday nights in nursing homes? Where else will you find people in their 80s vacationing with 20-somethings? Age is a boundary. Economics is a boundary. The world is very, very familiar with people who are more affluent or rich, doing things for people who are poor, and then when that's done, they go back and hang out with people like themselves. Even if they don't have the same amount of money, they come from the same kind of educational structures and they're kind of used to, like, I go out here to minister to people who don't have what I have, but I really hang out and retreat back with people who are just like me. The world's totally used to that. It's why the book of James says, let us not be a kind of people who are preferential in our treatment to the rich. You shall love your neighbor as yourself without any distinction. Education backgrounds or how much financial security you have. This is a profound thing. James calls it fulfilling the royal law of scripture. There are political Boundaries. And so the church can be a place where Christians who come with different views on how government policy, policy should work, those Christians with different views come and still find unity in a local church. Because each Christian realizes that no matter how very important certain discussions in politics and politic and government policy are, what's more central to our lives together is not this politic, but his kingdom. And that provides a stronger foundation for unity, even amidst diverse opinion of how present government should work. or the boundary of social ability. I think I resonate deeply with this one just personally. <laughs> the writer asks, do socially awkward people describe your church as a refuge? Socially awkward. Or do they find in it do they find it to be just as cold and impersonal as the world outside? 
social ability is a unseen barrier to gospel fellowship. We go on, we could talk about cultural backgrounds, the rural, urban, suburban, the boundaries that we cross in order to be together. This afternoon over lunch, I want you to think through the kind of boundaries that we don't normally associate with diversity. And think through some of that for our church family and what that means. Because diversity, according to Ephesians 2 and 3, should be inevitable. And by God's grace, just as your pastor, we've seen that. We've seen that in our midst. And as we get ready to plant again, to, sorry, to plant the church in Hickman, and we want the, the two churches to grow strong and healthy, we want to keep before you things that only God in his power can do, that we cannot manufacture on our own. So for, so for your edification, just, just think back through to what we read this morning already. We can't do anything to manufacture this. God has already done it. Like if you scan through chapters 2 and 3, or maybe just kind of zero in on a few verses. Just, just look at chapter 2, verse 12, 13, 14. You find words like separated, alienated, having no hope. And then been brought near, verse 13, is our peace, has made us one, has broken down, all of the action words aren't telling us to do anything. They're describing what God has already done. As a matter of fact, in the two chapters, the one word of command for us, the readers, is remember. Chapter 2, verse 11, remember. Remember what you were. Remember how you were brought together by the preaching of the gospel. And remember who God the Father, like, remember. It's the kind of unity that Jesus died to bring about, to accomplish. not a unity for everybody who calls themselves Christians, but who are true Christians by the, whom the Spirit indwells. It's not an organizational unity. It's how he works in a body of believers. He fits us together, builds us together. And our task is to recognize that he has given us a precious gift of unity amidst diversity. And our task is not to manipulate it, but to guard it. Now, I finished reading for you chapters 2 and chapter 3. Just let your eyes 
bleed into chapter 4. Just, just a little bit. Bleed into chapter 4 just a little bit. We cannot manufacture unity amidst diversity, but we can guard it and tend it like a farmer taking care of the plants. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of, your, of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with peace, bearing with one another in love. Look at verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is a precious, God-wrought gift, and our task is to guard it with every interaction we have with each other. So let us reach for ways in which we can help to guard and cherish and foster a God wrought unity among us. Let me just give you a handful and I'll let you go. A kind of unity that we're that needs guarding, the work of guarding pushes against our consumerism that makes us want to sit back and say, if God has done it, then it's automatic and I don't have to do anything. I just get to come and demand it to be here. When in fact, when Paul speaks this way of guarding the unity, it requires sacrifice. We sacrifice our comfort. We sacrifice our comfort to reach out and associate with people who we wouldn't naturally be drawn to. So like after church, when we're done, you might spend some time talking to people who you get along really, really well with, and then take a little bit of time before you go to pop your head up and look around for somebody that you're not naturally drawn to and sacrifice your comfort and say hello. My name is X. We sacrifice our comfort. We sacrifice our preferences. Sometimes when we get together, you may not prefer the kind of coffee that we serve. We sacrifice our preferences for our coffee. We sacrifice our preferences because each Sunday when you walk in here, there's a different style of music, just things that we're used to. You guys are really, really good at that. We sacrifice our resources and our time. However, we might serve a fellow church member that may cost us our resources and our time. We sacrifice our habits in order to purposely spend time with people in our church family that we wouldn't normally see. We don't normally have opportunities to interact with them in our normal course of things. So therefore we look at our habits and we say, okay, so where can I sacrifice some of my habits so that I on purpose move towards people that my normal weekly rhythm doesn't cause me in to interact with.
Here's one that I've been pondering. In what ways do we make assumptions about what kind of church we are and give little attention to how that might affect others? Like, for instance, uh, if we're growing younger as a church family, some of the things that might be foremost in our concerns and things we're praying about might revolve around the needs of people in a certain age bracket. We might be totally ignorant to the concerns or challenges that somebody who is retired may face, empty nesters may face, somebody who's growing weak and still feels the call to ministry from the pastor every Sunday and wonders, how can I still do that? Or maybe just the opposite. Whatever it is, we hear sermons and we hear what's happening from the front and we filter it through our own experiences and that happens without even thinking and it's an act of effort to intentionally step out of our circle of concerns for groups of people like us and step into, I wonder how that's impacting her. And I just want to encourage you, like, the God of the impossible has brought us together. And every effort you make to wear a lifestyle that points to the gospel, he will bless. It's going to feel awkward and strange. He will bless it. He will be there. May the God of all grace work in us through the power of the Spirit. So that now and forever, the benediction at the end of chapter 3 will be ours. So would you stand with me? To him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. According to his power at work in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed.